There it is. All right. Welcome. Welcome back, everybody. It's a beautiful Monday, and we are going to dive in. We're talking scoliosexuality and I don't know, the, the, the autonomy, something about autonomy. But scoliosexuality, what the heck is that? We're going to learn. We're going to learn a lot today. Let's have fun. Let's dive in. Practicing polyamory, real life perspectives from the imperfect people of polyamory. The mission of the Practicing Polyamory podcast is to provide a platform for all of the real-life, flawed humans that practice polyamory so that we might all learn from one another and grow as a community. Enjoy the show. Rewriting autonomy. That's what I was supposed to say. All right, everybody. Let's dive right in. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And before we do dive in, I want to quickly remind everybody that we do Three shows every week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. We're open for questions. So if you have any questions about your relationships or if there's a topic you'd like to hear discussed on the show, slide into my DMs and let me know. Follow us on all social medias, especially on Facebook and Instagram. That's where I'm most active. But everywhere, at Practicing Polyay and send me a message. Don't forget to enable notifications on YouTube and Facebook and join us for the live recording where you can get your questions answered live on the spot. And as always, I want to remind you, if you're listening to this podcast, you are a welcome guest to be on the show. We are here to share our imperfect stories, and I want to get as many voices as possible to speak here because I know that the more stories we hear, the more others will see us in themselves, and the more representation we have, the more we can strengthen our community. So go to practicingpolyamory.com and sign up today. All right, that is my spiel. Best part of the show, introducing our awesome guest. Our guest today is on a mission to help others find internal and external peace, and they do so by teaching their clients how to live and love authentically. Our guest is passionate about their work as a mental health provider and works hard to ensure a safe space for individuals, couples, poly units, and families so that you can find your innate potential and achieve your dreams. With their 19 years of experience in BDSM, 12 years of experience in polyamory, and nine years of gender exploration, our guest is uniquely positioned to advise folks struggling and navigating all of those things, as well as the anxiety, depression, and identity crises that often accompany changes in lifestyles, love styles, and other transitions. In addition to their work as a therapist, our guest runs their local polyam group, Atlanta Polyamory, and hosts educational discussions, support groups, and polysocializing. I'm excited to dive in and learn from this awesome guest today. So let me just shut up and say, joining us today from Love Positive Counseling out of Atlanta, Georgia, welcome to the show, Anna Baxter. And let me just add, I'm so happy to have my producer back. Love you, bro. Anna, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. That's quite the introduction. I feel like a rock star. <laughs> you are a rock star when you're on the Practicing Polyamory podcast. That's how it works. So, it. Anna, tell me all about you. Start from the beginning. Tell me about your third grade cheating on your chemistry test and everything. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but no, tell me about yourself. Um, what inspired you to choose a career in psychology as a therapist? Uh, and, you know, obviously, since you've been in the community, that's why you wanted to serve the community. But what what got you here? That is a long story. We'll give you the short version. I knew Let's in do high it. school that I wanted to do something in psychology. I have always been intellectually incredibly curious about sexuality mm -hmm. and 
in high school, I figured out how sex repressed our culture is. So I was like, ah, maybe not do that. I don't want to be judged. But then mm-hmm. when I got to college, I realized that my love was not in mood disorders. My love was in relationships and mm-hmm. and authentic expression of ourselves and our sexualities. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to challenge culturals, our culture's sex negative uh, attitudes. And so I went back into psychology with the intention of focusing on sexuality and I've landed in private practice working actually more with relationships than sexuality but of course that's all part of our identity our sexuality and who we like to have sex with ourselves Mm -hmm. and other people it's all part of that and so I end up working with all of it it works it works um let I want to ask you you know first thing about scoliosexuality that is a new one on me I I've heard Demi, I've heard Sapio, I've heard Ace, Gray Ace. I, there's all kinds of different things. Which one is this? Scoliosexuality. You gotta, you gotta school me here. So this is an interesting one. Um, I thought I was like really well educated in sexualities and all, all the different sexual orientations that possibly exist. And a couple of years into being a therapist, I learned this word and was like, oh my gosh, that's me. There's a word to explain my attraction and and to describe my particular brand of attraction. Um, So it was fairly new to me just a few years ago. Basically what it means is I am a person that is attracted to somebody who encompasses a wide variety of gender expression and gender identity. So Mm. I tend to be attracted to a mixture of masculine and feminine. That means in, in functionality, I tend to hang out with transgender people a lot. I tend to be attracted to transgender people. Um, before I knew the word scoliosexual, I used to joke with friends that I was a cockasexual. If you had one or were wearing to wear one, I'd probably find you hot. <laughs> <laughs> so that's really like, it's just that, that mixture of masculine and feminine. Got it. I think he's wonderful. Exactly. <laughs> so kind of somebody that, that, uh, walks that line and uh, androgynous or as you said actually transgender um anything that that isn't cis one way or the other that's kind of where you land yep all right right in right in that middle portion cool uh so you learned about this this term a couple of years ago um has it changed your life did it did it really like impact the way that you view relationships or, or the way that you approach relationships um, I don't think so. I, the way I've always conducted relationships is about the same. It just gave me some language to to better explain who I am and who I'm looking for when I'm, mm-hmm. I'm trying to date. Um, the the kinds of partners I choose is still the same. Mm-hmm. So uh, for yourself, it hasn't really changed. How has it impacted the way that you are able to express that idea maybe to your clients? Oh, incredibly. The the number of people that I've been able to gift this word to has been extensive. I mean, between my work with Atlanta Polyamory and with all of my clients, I'm often going over the, the, um, the, the list of words that mm-hmm. are available to describe ourselves and, and how we show up in relationships and how we conduct our relationships and, and having that, um, I'm getting the word, a collection of words and the definitions, um, having that available to vocabulary? our vocabulary. 
vocabulary the one mm-hmm. at the end of the book. <laughs> Anywho, um, having a collection Index? of, of Index? words. And, no, no, I don't know. G. Anyway, <laughs> I'm like glossary. Like, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Score. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I got it. I got it. Having a glossary with a wide variety of descriptions and their their generally accepted definitions mm-hmm. can really help my clients find that resonance and that validation with their own experiences and to be able to uh, more accurately negotiate their relationships, whether they're one night or whether they're for the rest of time and everything in between. So what is it about having that glossary about having the words to describe these things, what is it that that gives the the power to those words? In other words, um, or better said, um, when I am able to identify that I am scoliosexual or whatever word that, that is going to apply to me, what is the power in finding that? I think there's the the possibility, it's not always a guarantee, but I think there's a possibility in validation of them as a, a whole person and an acceptable person. Mm-hmm. A lot of times people in LGBTQGE, whichever acronym you want to use, um, they feel like they're not acceptable, like the way they are and, and who they love, who they sex with um somehow makes them lesser than mm-hmm. in some way and um not deserving of love and compassion as much as other people and and having words in a glossary that is rather universally accepted as like yes people exist in these ways gives them a, a chance not guaranteed every time but Often, if somebody sees that word and sees representation of themselves, then they have the opportunity to to validate themselves and and understand that they are okay the way that they mm-hmm. are. So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> there is a yep. chance to be accepted to to recognize that you know my identity, the way that I identify, there are others like me, and I think you know that's. That's huge, um, and it's it's not always something that you can just Google, right? It's it's yeah. it's definitely something that talking to someone like you and you bringing that glossary out and saying these are all the list of words and this is what they all mean. Which one applies to you? Okay, cool. We found it. Now we can find you community. Does yeah. that sound about right? Yeah. Cool. I dig it. Um, what is it about the uh, finding of those terms, what is it about finding those terms and finding um, that identity that gives us the power to go into our next topic, which is rewriting our autonomy? Uh, Do those things, or maybe better said, how do those things uh, correlate and coexist? That is a great segue because I think that knowledge of ourself and the, the, identification of ourselves as separate from the heteronormative culture, again, gives an opportunity, gives us the chance to um, make decisions in our life that fit 
best with who I actually am. Once mm -hmm. I understand who I am, then I can make choices that make me the best version of me, that make my life mm -hmm. match what is best for me, body, mind, and soul. Mm -hmm. There's a lot that goes into that, though. There's um, When we're talking identity, when we're talking about these terms that, that best suit us, it's we are walking into one and shedding another. Yeah. Would you say that that's mostly true? Yeah. So in that process, there's some coping that needs to happen. There's, there's, uh, you know, one other therapist that I talked to, there's even a grief, a grief of, of losing that former identity and stepping into the new one. So what are some, some things that you, uh, tell your clients as they're finding their new identity, as they're stepping into this new identity, uh, to help them deal with, I, I'll use the word trauma of shedding this old one and releasing who they used to be to accept who they are now. The biggest one I always talk about is neuroscience. So we know Ooh. from neuroscience and neuro neurological imaging that we have the potential to actually change the neurons in our brain. So through our life, we have learned to think and feel emotions in a certain way in response mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. stimulus, right? And for a lot of us, that looks like norms in heteromonogamous relationships. And we're taught to feel some kind of way, usually scared of some kind, fearful, avoidant of anything outside of that norm. And so even if we're getting that inkling of something other than heteromonogamous is probably going to be better for me, our neurons are still trained to respond in a certain way that might be really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. So as we're stepping into a, a more authentic life and a more authentic expression of ourselves, we may feel really uncomfortable about that and wonder, is this actually right for me? Is this not right for me? And um, with time, practice, intention, we can train our neurons to fire in a different way. Hmm. Got it. I wasn't aware that was something a person could do. It's always one of my favorites. Yeah. So it sounds like our our bodies, our brains, our neuropathways have been trained a certain way. Uh, they've been written a certain way, and we've practiced this way for however long we've been on this planet, whether we're, we're recognizing this at 12 years old or 20 years old or 40 years old, whatever the case might be. We've had these neural pathways written and, and programmed for so long. And so it sounds like what you're saying is we are reprogramming those neural pathways with time and practice. Is that right? Yeah, basically. That seems pretty cool. Um, yeah. What kinds of, of practices, what types of things are we doing? I mean, is it like like daily mantras that we're telling ourselves? Is it affirmations? Uh, what kinds of things are we doing to rewrite these neural pathways? You just named two of the, the common oh. examples. Yep, daily mantras and affirmations. Um, other things, we uh, use a lot of attachment theory. And, and a lot of the, the models connected to that of 
recognizing within ourselves what our behaviors are. So in addition to replacing thoughts, which is mm -hmm. what the, the mantras and the affirmations are, I genuinely start with uh, awareness of myself. So being able to acknowledge what thought I'm having and what feeling I'm having that's connected to it. Mm. A lot of people don't know how to even observe that within themselves. They just do things and they're not sure where that came from. Um, Guilty. So step one is observe it within yourself without, you know, guaranteed action. And then at that point, we have the, the power to change our minds, right? Mm -hmm. Our mind says a thing, whatever it's been trained to do, we observe that. And then we think to ourselves, is that what I want to do? Is that what I want to feel? Is that the life I want to have? Is that the person I want to be? No? Okay. So conscious choice. My unconscious choice was the first thing, whatever came to mind. What's the conscious choice? What do I want to do with my life? Not just what the world has taught my brain to do. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we can make choices based on our identified values, things that are important to me, not just what the world has told me is important. Yeah. So it sounds like uh, we are kind of rewriting our own story. Um, I remember having, you know, multiple conversations with, with, uh, with my partner, uh, and it would be something going on in my business where I'm freaking out and, you know, something isn't going right and I'm just scared and worried. And, you know, I'm, I'm explaining to her these fears and these worries that I have. And she'll just like dead ass look at me and be like, is that the story that you want to tell yourself? And I'm like, well, no, that's not the story that I want to tell myself, but that's what I'm feeling. So that's that. Uh, it sounds like that's what you're talking about is, is being able to stop myself in that moment, be present, take a take a, a, a subjective objective step backwards and say, OK, this is what emotional me is saying. Let me get into my logical brain and work it around a different way. Does that sound about right? A little bit. Sometimes the emotional side can really be a helpful aspect in this. So tell me more. Some brains are, are more emotional and some brains are more logical. Sometimes following the emotion is actually more helpful. And that's not necessarily to say, like, if you're angry, follow that emotion through and punch <laughs> a hole in a wall, right? Bad idea. But, <laughs> right. Very much a bad idea. But um, being able to feel our emotions and understand why our emotions are arising and what is the unmet need connected to that gives us the chance to communicate that and, and potentially meet that need if we're not being conscious of that. Makes sense. Another thing that you mentioned was uh, the attachment theory. So yeah. how does attachment theory tie into the neuroscience and, and rewriting all of these neural pathways and, and helping us to redefine our identity? Well, attachment theory, the basis of it is that our caretaker relationships, when we are the youngest and our brains are, are developing, teach us what to expect about other people and ourselves. So if our caretakers are really disconnected emotionally, they don't react to our cries for our needs. If we're, if we're hungry, if we're thirsty, if we're sleepy, if we're hot, if we're cold, all we know how to do is cry. If mm -hmm. our caretakers don't engage and, and try to figure out what our needs are in those young ages, then that trains our brain to react in certain ways. 
if protest doesn't work, then we'll just go quiet. Mm-hmm. And, and those behaviors become emotional and behavioral patterns as adults in our adult relationships. And it just, it starts from that early from whether or not basically we're held as a child. I mean, I, I, I almost simplifying it. Like I'm definitely oversimplifying it. Yes. Um, but so, so that's, that's where the attachment theory comes from. But in what we're talking about in rewriting autonomy in, in redefining our identity, how does the attachment theory, how, what are we letting go of or what are we detaching from to step into whatever our new identity or rewrite our neural pathways? Well, it's part of the, the awareness, right? The attachment theory informs our understanding of how we came to be who we are today and, mm-hmm. and the development of those neural pathways. And then it, you know, depending on who we are today, which attachment patterns we have, we get to decide which ones do we want to keep, which ones are helpful, which ones are adaptive, and which ones are potentially maladaptive in the life that we want to have. And then we can use the tools to change those neural pathways to learn how to be, uh, to, to learn how to attach more securely if we've got an insecure attachment. Got it. Sounds like we're really getting to the root and just kind of digging it up from there, starting Mm -hmm. from, from a very, very uh, foundational place Mm -hmm. and working our way up. Yep. Cool. So tell me about how um, the importance here of finding these different things, um, the the sexuality or, or or the autonomy specifically let's talk about autonomy uh and how the autonomy ties into polyamory from where you stand i mean that's kind of a pretty large subject there um so i guess i'll just ask you what does autonomy mean to you in your polyamorous journey so on the greater scale of beyond my personal, um, I, I find that there's more autonomy in relationships in non-monogamous relationships. Mm-hmm. In monogamy, we're often taught, like, I control your decisions, you control my decisions mm-hmm. to some degree. In, in polyamory, a lot of people come to find out that it's not really that healthy to control somebody else's decisions. We make our own decisions to take care of our, ourselves and our people in our world, um, but controlling other people's decisions and, and actions is not as welcome in strictly right. non-monogamous relationships. For me, autonomy has become incredibly important as I uh, came a few years ago, I came to understand myself as solo polyamorous mm-hmm. and having autonomy and a rather distinct identity separate from my partner's both like in my life, but in my communities became really important to me. I wanted to be able to make decisions about my life without rather extensively having to consider the impact on my partners. Right. I didn't want them to have a lot of input in my life. I didn't want to have a lot of input in their life. I wanted a lot of separation. That's not necessarily true anymore. Um, Mm -hmm. I've moved away from that in my life, but that autonomy is still really important to me. 
um, just as a human, I, I hope and wish for more people to understand the importance of autonomy in, um, in relationships in our lives. If we don't feel like we have a lot of autonomy, then we can feel kind of stuck right. or powerless or um, resentful in relationships. And that can really show up in, in sneaky ways, like a lot of conflict and emotional manipulation and stuff like that. I totally agree with all of that. And, you know, autonomy is somewhat new, I guess. Uh, well, I think sort the of. word, people using the word is fairly new. Yeah. People using the word is fairly new. What do you mean? I, I don't think it's a, a word that people commonly uh, discuss in their lives as mm -hmm. a strong value or a need in their relationships. I think even even amongst my clients and the community around me, I don't see people asking for autonomy. That's not a word that they put in their therapeutic goals. It's not it's not a common one. People are you know more worried about how do I feel better, how do I have a healthy relationship. Don't have a sense of you know, I need autonomy. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> and how does how does autonomy tie into uh, into that therapy practice? Because it sounds to me like you're saying that people are kind of lacking that desire for autonomy, or they just don't have the language. They haven't they haven't thought about it. Um, is it something that they're that they are missing? Is it something that that you encourage them to find? Uh, how does it how does it change the way that they approach relationships? My personal theory is that it comes from those early lessons around heteromonogamous normativity that mm -hmm. that we're taught to devalue autonomy, that we're taught to care about other people to the point of not taking care of ourselves and not m meeting our own needs in order to take care of other people's instead. Mm -hmm. And as a result, we compromise our own autonomy and we expect other people to compromise their autonomy to take care of us and to be in relationship with us. Mm -hmm. And so um, people come into my office, come into our community with, you know, codependent patterns. Right. And, bringing them to that, that stronger sense of identity and, and giving them the opportunity to understand themselves and speak up for themselves gives them the opportunity to decide whether, you know, a lot of autonomy is really important to them or not. Some people, it's not important to them at all. They much more prefer connection and will, you know, make the choices to care about other people ahead of themselves. That doesn't necessarily mean it's bad. It's just... Mm -hmm. A lot of people don't think about autonomy as something they might need. It is kind of in the programming, right? Uh, love is sacrifice. Love is pain. Love is, you know, all these different things. Um, but like we kind of lose that sense of loving ourselves. Does that yeah. sound? Yeah. yeah. Good stuff. Anna, this has been a really fun conversation. I want to ask you, uh, is there anything that I missed? Is there anything that you wish that I would have asked you uh, or just some final thoughts maybe that you'd like to leave for the audience? No, I think it went in a beautiful direction. I wasn't sure quite what to expect. And I'm, I'm glad we wandered there because that's really the, the heart of my work. That's the passion for me is autonomy and authentic expression in, in people's lives and selves and relationships. So I'm so glad to share it with you and your audience. 
Cool. And uh, speaking of your work, can you tell people how to get in touch with you if they want to work with you? Yes. So best place is our website, uh, www.lovepositivecounseling.com. Um, I'm not currently taking new clients at the moment. I'm full, which is always good news, but I have three therapists who are under my supervision who all are, and we're all kink, poly, and trans knowledgeable. So, um, if people need counseling, we've got somebody for them. And then I'm also president of Atlanta Polyamory. We're technically a local group, but we've been doing a lot of our support groups and educational events on Zoom. So we've had people from as far away as Canada joining our event. So nice. no matter where you are, you're welcome to join us. And info for that is at our website uh, or on our meetup group. That's the best way to find events for us is meetup.com slash Atlanta Polyamory. Perfect. All right. Well, Anna, again, I want to thank you so much for hanging out with me today, for spending some time, for giving us some of your insight and uh, helping us learn about this glossary and how important it is to our identity and our autonomy. Thanks so much. Thank you. And thank you, as always, to our live audience for tuning in today. As a reminder, when we're live, you get no commercial interruptions, but the same can't be said for those podcast downloads. So if you want to avoid the commercial interruptions, be sure to catch us live Monday through Wednesday, 2.30 Pacific time, or sign up for our Patreon where you'll get access to our commercial-free RSS feed and support the show. Don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, wherever it is that you download your podcast. And if you haven't already, please leave us a review. We'll really appreciate it. That is all we've got for you today. Thanks again to our awesome guest and for everybody else, as always. Thank you for tuning in to the Practicing Polyamory podcast. Would you or someone in your polycule like to be a guest? Sign up at practicingpolyamory.com and join the conversation. Please support us by subscribing, liking, and following us on social media at Practicing Polya by clicking any of the affiliate links on our website or by subscribing at patreon.com slash practicingpolya.